Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I'm reading today from the Sovereignty Messages of Charles Spurgeon. We're going to do a two-day trip here with uh, a message entitled The Perseverance of the Saints. It was delivered on June 24, 1877 at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington, London, England by Charles Spurgeon. He uses Job 17.9 as his text, and it goes, The righteous also shall hold on his way. The man who is righteous before God has a way of his own. It's not the way of the flesh, nor the way of the world. It is a way marked out for him by the divine command in which he walks by faith. It is the king's highway of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. Only the ransomed of the Lord shall walk there, and these shall find it a path of separation from the world. Once entered upon the way of life, the pilgrim must persevere or perish. For thus says the Lord, If any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. Perseverance in the path of faith and holiness, is a necessity of the Christian, for only he that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. It is in vain to spring up quickly like the seed that was sown upon the rock, and then by and by wither when the sun is up. That would but prove that such a plant has no root in itself, but the trees of the Lord are full of sap. And they abide and continue and bring forth fruit, even in old age, to show that the Lord is upright. There's a great difference between nominal Christianity and real Christianity. And this is generally seen in the failure of the one and the continuance of the other. Now, the declaration of the text is that the truly righteous man shall hold on his way. He shall not go back. He shall not leap the hedges and wander to the right or the left. He shall not lie down in idleness. Neither shall he faint and cease to go upon his journey. But he shall hold on his way. It will frequently be very difficult for him to do so. But he will have such resolution, such power of inward grace given him, that he will hold on his way with stern determination, as though he held on by his teeth, resolving never to let go. Perhaps he may not always travel with equal speed. It is not said he shall hold on his pace, but he shall hold on his way. There are times when we run and are not weary, and anon when we walk are thankful that we do not faint. Aye, and there are periods when we are glad to go on all fours and creep upward with pain. But still we prove that the righteous shall hold on his way. Under all difficulties, the face of the man whom God has justified is steadfastly set towards Jerusalem. Nor will he turn aside till his eyes shall see the king in his beauty. This is a great wonder. It is a marvel that any man should be a Christian at all. And a greater wonder that he should continue so. Consider the weakness of the flesh, the strength of inward corruption, 
the fury of satanic temptation, the seductions of wealth and the pride of life, the world and the fashion thereof, all these things are against us. And yet, behold, greater is he that is for us than all they that be against us. And defying sin and Satan and death and hell, the righteous holds on his way. I take our text as accurately setting forth the doctrine of the final perseverance of the saints. The righteous shall hold on his way. Years ago, uh, when there was an earnest, even a bitter controversy between Calvinists and Arminians, it was the habit of each side to caricature the other. Very much of the argument is not directed against the real sentiment of the opposite party, but against what had been imputed to them. They made a man of straw, and then they burned him, which is a pretty easy thing to do, but I trust we have left these things behind. The glorious truth of the final perseverance of the saints has survived controversy, and in some form or other is the cherished belief of the children of God. Take care, however, to be clear as to what it is. The scripture does not teach that a man will reach his journey's end without continuing to travel along the road. It is not true that one act of faith is all, and that nothing is needed of daily faith, prayer, and watchfulness. Now, our doctrine is the very opposite, namely that the righteous shall hold on his way, or, or in other words, shall continue in faith, in repentance, in prayer, and under the influence of the grace of God. We do not believe in salvation by a physical force which treats a man as a dead log, carries him whether he will or, or not towards heaven. No, he holds on. He is personally active about the matter and plods on uphill and down dale till he reaches his journey's end. We never thought nor even dreamed that merely because a man supposes that he once entered on this way, he may therefore conclude that he is certain of salvation, even if he leaves the way immediately. No, but we say that he who truly received the Holy Ghost, so that he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, shall not go back, but persevere in the way of faith. It is written, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. And this he cannot do, if he were left to go back and delight in sin as he did before. Therefore, he shall be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Though the believer, to his grief, will commit many a sin, yet still the tenor of his life will be holiness to the Lord, and he will hold on the way of obedience. We detest the doctrine <clears throat> that a man who has once believed in Jesus will be saved even if he altogether forsook the path of obedience. We deny that such a turning aside is possible to the true believer, and therefore the idea imputed to us is clearly an invention of the adversary. No, beloved, a man, if he be indeed a believer in Christ, will not live after the will of the flesh. When he does fall into sin, 
it will be his grief and misery, and he will never rest till he is cleansed from guilt. But I will say this of the believer, that if he could live as he would like to live, he would live a perfect life. If you ask him if after believing he may live as he wants, he'll reply, Would God I could live as I want, for I desire, I want, to live altogether without sin. I would be perfect, even as my Father in heaven is perfect. The doctrine is not the licentious idea that a believer may live in sin, but that he cannot and will not do so. This is the doctrine. And we will first prove it. And secondly, in the Puritanic sense of the word, we will briefly improve it by drawing two spiritual lessons therefrom. First, let us prove the doctrine. Please, to follow me with your Bibles open. You, dear friends, have most of you received, as a matter of faith, <clears throat> the doctrines of grace. And therefore, to you, the doctrine of final perseverance cannot require any proving, because it follows from all the other doctrines. <clears throat> we believe that God has an elect people whom he has chosen unto eternal life, and that truth necessarily involves the perseverance in grace. We believe in special redemption, and this secures the salvation and consequent perseverance of the redeemed. We believe in effectual calling, which is bound up with justification, a, a justification which ensures glorification. The doctrines of grace are like a chain. If you believe in one of them, you must believe the next, for each one involves the rest. And therefore I say that you who accept any of the doctrines of grace must receive this also as involved in them. But I am about to try to prove this to those who do not receive the doctrines of grace. Now, I would not argue in a circle and prove one thing which you doubt by another thing which you doubt, <laughs> But to the law and to the testimony, to the actual words of Scripture, we shall refer the matter. And before we advance to the argument, it will be well to remark that those who reject the doctrine frequently tell us that there are many cautions in the Word of God against apostatizing, and that those cautions can have no meaning if it be true that the righteous shall hold on his way. But, what if those cautions are the means in the hand of God of keeping his people from wandering? What if they are used to excite a holy fear in the minds of his children and so become the means of preventing the evil which they denounce? I would also remind you that in the epistle to the Hebrews, which contains the most solemn warnings against apostasy, the apostle always takes care to add words which show that he did not believe that those whom he warned would actually apostatize. Turn to Hebrews 6.9. He's been telling these Hebrews that if those who had been once enlightened should fall away, it would be impossible 
to renew them again, to repentance. And then he adds, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, things that accompany salvation, even though we speak thus. In the 10th chapter, he gives an equally earnest warning, declaring that those who should do despot to the spirit of grace are worthy of sorer punishment than those who despise Moses' law. But he closes the chapter with these words. Now, the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But, <laughs> but we are not of them who draw back unto perdition. We are of them that believe to the saving of the soul. And thus he shows what the consequences of apostasy would be. But he is convinced that they will not choose to incur such a fearful doom. Again, objectors sometimes mention instances of apostasy which are mentioned in the Word of God. But on looking into them, it will be discovered that these are cases of persons who did but profess to know Christ, but were not really possessors of the divine life. John, in his first epistle, 2.19, fully describes these apostates. He says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not of us. Well, the like is true of the memorable passage in John where our Savior speaks of branches of the vine which are cut off and cast into the fire. These are described as branches in Christ that bear no fruit. Are those real Christians? How can they be so if they bear no fruit? By their fruits you shall know them. The branch which bears fruit is purged, but it is never cut off. Those which bear no fruit are not figures of true Christians, but they fitly represent mere professors. Our Lord in Matthew 7.22 tells us concerning many who will say in that day, Lord, Lord, that he will reply, I never knew you. Not I have forgotten you, but I never knew you. They were never really his disciples. But now to the argument itself. First, we argue the perseverance of the saints most distinctly from the nature of the life which is imparted at regeneration. But what saith Peter concerning this life? First Peter one twenty three, He speaks of the people of God as being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. The new life which is planted in us when we are born again is not like the fruit of our first birth, for that is subject to mortality, but it is a divine principle which cannot die nor be corrupt. And if it be so, then he who possesses it must live forever, must indeed be evermore what the Spirit of God in regeneration has made him. And so in 1 John 3, 9, we have the same thought in another form. 
Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. And that is to say, the bent of the Christian's life is not towards sin. It would not be a fair description of his life that he, that he lives in sin. On the contrary, he fights and contends against sin because he has an inner principle which cannot sin. The new life sinneth not. It is born of God. It cannot transgress. And though the old nature warreth against it, yet doth the new life so prevail in the Christian that he is kept from living in sin. Our Savior, in his simple teaching of the gospel to the Samaritan woman, said to her in John 4.13, Whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water, springing up into everlasting life. Now, if our Savior taught this to a sinful and ignorant woman at his first interview with her, I take it that this doctrine is not to be reserved for the inner circle of full-grown saints, but to be preached ordinarily among the common people, and to be held up as a most blessed privilege. If you receive the grace which Jesus imparts to your souls, it shall be like the good part which Mary chose. It shall not be taken away from you. It shall abide in you, not as the water in a cistern, but as a living fountain springing up into everlasting life. We know that the life given in the new birth is intimately connected with faith. Now, faith is in itself a conquering principle. In the first epistle of John, which is a great treasury of argument, we are told, Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God? See then that which is born of God in us, namely the new life, is a conquering principle. There is no hint given that it can ever be defeated. And faith, which is its outward sign, is also in itself triumphant evermore. Therefore, of necessity... Because God has implanted such a wondrous life in us, in bringing us out of darkness into his marvelous light, because he has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, because the eternal and ever-blessed Spirit hath come to dwell in us, we conclude that the divine life within us shall never die. The righteous shall hold on his way. Well, the second argument to which I shall call your attention shall be drawn from our Lord's own express declarations. Here we shall look to the Gospel of John again, and in that blessed third chapter of John, where our Lord was explaining the Gospel in the simplest style to Nicodemus, we find him laying great stress upon the fact that the life received by faith in himself is eternal. Look at that previous verse, the 14th. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, 
but have eternal life. Do men therefore believe in him and yet perish? Do they believe in him and receive a, a spiritual life which comes to an end? It cannot be. For God gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish. But he would perish if he did not persevere to the end. And therefore he must persevere to the end. The believer has eternal life. And how then can he die so as to cease to be a believer? If he does not abide in Christ, he evidently has not eternal life. Therefore, he shall abide in Christ even to the end. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Well, to this, some reply that a man may have everlasting life and lose it. To which we answer, the word cannot so mean. Such a statement is a self-evident contradiction. If the life be lost, the man is dead. How then did he have everlasting life? It is clear that he had a life which lasted only for a while. He certainly had not everlasting life, for if he had it, he must live everlastingly. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. John 3.36 The saints in heaven have eternal life, and no one expects them to perish. Their life is eternal. But eternal life is eternal life, whether the person possessing it dwells on earth or in heaven. I need not read all the passages in which the same truth is taught. But further on, in John 6, 47, our Lord told the Jews, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me hath everlasting life. Not temporary life, but everlasting life. And in the 51st verse, he said, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And then comes that famous declaration of the Lord Jesus Christ, which if there were no other at all, would be quite sufficient to prove our point. John ten twenty eight, And I give unto my sheep eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any, the word man is not in the original, neither shall any pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them to me, is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. What can he mean but this? That he has grasped his people, and that he means to hold them securely in his mighty hand. Where is the power can reach us there, or what can pluck us thence, said the poet. Over and above the hand of Jesus, which was pierced, comes the hand of the omnipotent Father as a sort of second grasp. My Father, which gave them to me, is greater than all, and no man is able to plug them out of my Father's hand. Surely this must show that the saints are secure from anything and everything which would destroy them, and consequently safe from total apostasy. Another passage speaks to the same effect. It's to be found in Matthew twenty-four, twenty-four. 
where the Lord Jesus has been speaking of the false Christs and false prophets that should deceive many. There shall arise, he said, false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect, which shows that it is impossible for the elect to be deceived by them. Of Christ's sheep, it is said, a stranger will they not follow, for they know not the voice of a stranger. But by divine instinct, they know the voice of the good shepherd, and they follow him. Thus has our Savior declared, as plainly as words possibly can express it, that those who are his people possess eternal life within themselves and shall not perish but shall enter into everlasting felicity. The righteous shall hold on his way. There's more arguments. I hate to use that word. That sounds so negative. More proof, more whatever tomorrow, next time, as we get together and complete this message. I know you'll want to hear the rest of it. Hey, we have the works of other great men of God on this website and a whole lot of other things too. I do hope that you'll go looking around from time to time and seeing what you can enjoy yourself or pass on to others. If you have a Korean-speaking friend, you'll want to tell them about my site where there are 400-plus Korean audios about North Korea. And I hope that you'll tell your friends about that. There's so much more, but that's all for this time. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. Lord willing, we will talk real soon. Bye-bye.